carve out a way. <coughs> Show us a path, lighten, brighten a path for us. And then, Lord, show us the truth and the reality that Jesus said, I am the way. Amen. We don't just have to go somewhere to get to God. God is the path. He never leaves us or forsakes us. So when we say, make a way, we're asking you to be with us. To walk close to us, God. That's what we're seeking today. Somebody today needs to open their heart to belief again. You've become cynical, skeptical. You've been hurt. You've got big questions. The truth is, there's no answers down those other paths. And you know it. You know it and you know it. You know it in your gut. Today, the waters of the Red Sea in your soul are not going to part until you step out and your feet get wet in those waters. Somebody has to take a step of faith and say to God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to choose you. Joshua said, choose you this day whom you will serve. Yes, Make up your mind. We used to preach when I was a kid that I had a made up mind. Somebody in this place needs a made-up mind. Somebody needs to be like the woman with the issue of blood and press through the crowd. I will not be denied. Somebody else needs to hear what Jesus said. I just found out the other day, after all these years, read right past it many times, I found out that one of my baseball coaches and my dad, they used to say to me, Dig deep. And I found out in the Gospel of Luke, the English Standard Version of the Bible, Jesus said dig deep. Dig deep. Somebody needs to do that today. Because that's inside of you. That faith is inside of you. God gave you a measure of faith and you need to dig deep and find it today. Trust Him. He is going to make a way where there is no way. Somebody needs to trust Him with the salvation of their children. Somebody needs to get out of the way and trust them that way. Somebody needs to trust them with their health. Somebody needs to trust them with the future. Somebody needs to trust them with their marriage. Father, today, somebody needs to trust them with church. God, today, draw by your spirit. Fan the flame. Somebody give me a microphone that works. There we go. Let's see this one. Let me tell you something. The Bible says in Isaiah, I will not allow the smoking flax to be quenched. You know what that means? Have you ever seen a candle? You pull a candle out and it's just got smoke? There's no more flame. God said in Isaiah, I will not allow a smoking candle to burn out. Everybody else already thinks it's burnt out. God said if there's smoke, there's fire. I won't allow it to be quenched. I'll fan that thing back into flame. Somebody's smoking in this place today, God. They're not on fire. Everybody else thinks it's over. Satan's just about doing a rally and a, and, a, and a victory lap over their life. But you said today you came by with your powerful, wonderful, precious word that gives life and lightens our eyes and empowers us and heals us. 
to tell us from your word, I will not allow the smoking candle to be quenched. Thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, somebody receive that. That's your word from God today. That's, that's to you. That's His Word spoken and reminded and brought to your remembrance into your situation right now. Thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' name. You can give the Lord a hand of praise if you will. Let me see if you can. <clears throat> Missed everybody last week. We've got others traveling this week, no doubt. And, uh, and we'll miss them this week, but we're glad to be together as a family. Uh, we are celebrating with you this uh, holiday we all celebrate in our culture. Uh, let me say to the families in this room that are celebrating a dad, um, a good dad, um, to those good dads, God bless your heart. Thank you for your commitment. Thank you for your, thank you for your role. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for, especially to those who lead their children or grandchildren in the way of the Lord. Thank you for doing that, for modeling that, for teaching. If, if you're a man and you pray with your kids or grandkids or with young people, thank you for doing that. Thank you for letting them see you pray. Thank you for letting them see you say, I apologize when you're wrong. Thank you for letting them hear you say, I love you. Whatever it is, all those dads out there that do those kinds of things or providing and all the things that you do, God bless your heart and we're glad for you today. We appreciate you. For all of those of you dads out there that are uh, a mixed bag of good and evil, today's a day for you, uh, a challenge set before you, a challenge set before you. For those of you who uh, uh, have had less than pristine experience with dad, let me offer you this. I've had a lot of people in my ministry over the years that I've been involved in church that have come to me. In fact, one year... I was, I guess I was 20 years old. I just started. I was an associate pastor at the church. I knelt down on Easter Sunday, a little girl in a big frilly dress. And in my naivete, I looked at her and I said, you look so beautiful today. Your daddy must be so proud of you. And she said, sir, I, I don't have a dad. And at 20 years old, I realized that on these holidays and times like this, that while some of us celebrate, some of us do not. And it is a challenge. But I'm going to challenge you this way. And I've told people this for years. If things aren't right with dad or they weren't good with dad or you weren't good as dad, whatever, did you know this? Did you know that we don't measure? We don't relate to God the Father based on our earthly father. It's the other way around. We measure fatherhood by his father. So in other words, when some people say, well, I have trouble reaching up to God because of that father thing, they've got it backwards. We don't go to God through the image of our dad. We let God's word show us what fathering looks like. We see there a God whose love is tremendous. It never gives up. It never fails. It loves unconditionally. A God who provides, who stays in the game, who disciplines. Some of you like God to be a grandfather. Some of you want God to be a gone fishing God. Some of you want that to happen. My, my, my dad, my kids call him Poppy. Poppy is a crazy person with my children. I don't even know who this man is. 
My, my kids were, I, my middle kid in the first crop, Cassidy, loved to go to Six Flags. And on a Saturday, I was supposed to take him to Six Flags. And on Friday night, they spent the night in coffee. And all of a sudden, you know, they got up early. I went over there to pick him up, going straight to Six Flags, which was Cassidy's favorite thing to do. Cassidy was sick. I said, what's wrong? And he was not going to vomit. He was getting real sick like this. I said, what's wrong? I said, did you eat this morning? Did you have breakfast? He said, yes. So what did Poppy feed you for breakfast? He said, Skittles. <laughs> Skittles. Yeah. Where was that guy at when he was raising me? Right? Remember that? Okay, some people want a gone fishing God. They want a grandfather God. That's not who God is. God's not a grandfather God. He's not a God who has a... Who's gone fishing, who's kind of tired, raised his kids. He was really cool and important when Moses was alive, but now he's that's not how this thing works. God is intimately involved in the details of your life. Amen. He's providing for you, he cares for you, he's looking out for you, he's teaching you, he's loving you. He's in the game. He's not feeding you skittles for breakfast. Okay? He's not. He's not feeding you skittles for breakfast. Say that for some other time. Thank you for being here on this holiday. Like I said, we've got people traveling away, being with their families, those of you that are here. Thank you for celebrating this day for the Lord. I mean, as, as important as some days like Mother's Days and Father's Days and Independence Days are, every time I come to these days, I want to say the gospel is supreme. And that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? So in other words, we recognize fathers and mothers and all these things and we pray, but the truth is, the most important thing that can happen today is that you be confronted with the Lord. You need the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need an encounter with the living God. That's what needs to happen on Father's Day, Mother's Day, Independence Day, Labor Day weekend, all those other holiday weekends. That's what we need. Amen. Well, all right. I didn't mean to make everybody mad at me or whatever. But that's, that's the way I see it. I think that's true. So if I can get you guys to come and, 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 and to receive the offer this morning, Mike, Gary, if y'all come and, and, and do that. Um, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna attempt something different this morning. We'll let the kids go just a minute. Uh, just, just hang right there for a second, okay? <clears throat> so, Lord, quiet in our hearts. Quieten the, the souls of men and women, teens in this place. Quietness, Lord, our children. Just deep on the inside, God. That, that, that stuff that last week happened, that, that frustration, that pain, that anxiety, even the great things, the excitement, and then also for next week, that the, the anticipations or the dread, or whatever is going on. And Father, right now, quiet our souls so that we can be present in this moment. Lord, speak to our hearts today. Speak to our hearts. We need a living word today in this place. A living word. A word that sets our feet to dancing. A word that sets our life down a path that shows us the way. Now, Lord, <coughs> this church is responsible, and we are becoming more and more so in this community and surrounding 
We're responsible, Lord, for what we're doing, the ministry that gets done, the ministry that doesn't get done. And we need, Lord, the resources necessary to perform that at the level you've called us to do it, and you will give us favor and you will provide. Right now, Lord, we ask you to do that. Bless us, Lord, so we can be a blessing. Today, I pray for Pastor Smith and his family at Tabernacle of Praise. Today, I pray for Mike and Suzanne Lofton and for River of Life, for Eric Gale, Father of Trinity Fellowship, and Kevin Alfred, Lord, for Pastor Purvis. I pray for these men, and I ask you today, God, that some man in their church today will walk an aisle. Some man will walk an aisle and decide to be a different kind of a dad. That something will happen in a church like that. That men today, in all of these churches around here, God, certainly women have needs today. But God, specifically, I feel your spirit. You're, you're convicting. You're calling. Get that man out of bed and get him to that building today. Even if it's 1130, God. Get him there and let him hear the word of the Lord. Get him to an altar. Get him to a saving place. Get him to, a, get him to their knees, God, in these places. Drive them to their knees. Let somebody say a word, Lord, from your scripture. Let them sing a song or testify or shake their hand or cry or pray or whatever it is. And whatever that is, let it be the very thing that they needed to have. The very words that they said they needed to hear. The circumstances aligning, God, so that you can drive them, Lord, to their knees and draw them to you, to your cross. Do that, Father, for these churches as well. Not, we don't just pray for us today. We ask that your ministry and your gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, will go out to all these places and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. God bless you. As you give, kids, you guys are dismissed. Y'all have a wonderful day to get together in the children's church. And if you're going to stay with me and you got a scripture with you, we should have some Bibles in the pew if you want that. It'll be on the wall, the screen. But turn with me to Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. Daniel's an interesting book if you've never ventured into it. The first half of it is a bunch of stories. Narratives of, of actual history that happened. When the Jews were taken into the, uh, lost their land. And then the back half is a series of visions that Daniel had about the future. Not only of his people, but also even some of the, some of the visions have to do with the whole world. Many things for the time of the end. So at the beginning of Daniel, this is how Daniel starts. The Bible says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He stopped right there. Third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Who's this guy? He's the king of Israel that's still standing. The nation of Israel, the northern kingdom's gone. The Assyrians have already taken them. The only thing left of Israel are two tribes in the southern kingdom called Judah. And this guy is reigning over those people. And in the third year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Jehoiakim, his capital city was Jerusalem. That's where the temple of God was. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came and besieged that city. That means he surrounded it with an army and planned on starving everybody out in the city. 
He cut off all entrance and all exit. You could not get in to the city and you couldn't get out. It was terrible. It was one of the one of these great atrocities in the world where people ended up starving and at, at one point resorted to cannibalism to survive. That's what happened. That's what's behind this story. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. God allowed this to happen. In fact, he warned him about it for a long time. And he even let some of the things in the house go. <laughs> Not just the people, but things in his house. He let them go to Babylon. And he brought them to, this is Nebuchadnezzar, brought them to the land of Shinar. That's another way of talking about Babylon. To the house of his God. So Nebuchadnezzar took these things from the temple in Jerusalem back to the temple back home. And he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the, his chief unit, to bring some of the people of Israel. Notice who these people are. Both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. And he did all that to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Let me stop there. So imagine if somebody, we'll call it, we'll call it uh, China, they, let's imagine they actually physically invaded instead of cyber wars, okay? They actually invaded us. And let's say that they looked around at people and they found some of the people who were naturally noble. In other words, people from chief families, people who were going places, people who were probably going to be senators, etc., etc., the movers and the shakers, and they went around and found some of the most promised, the people, young men and women with the most promise among that group of people. People who were naturally going to be influential. If they hadn't have invaded, those people would have been in charge in 20 years. They went around and they found those people, like Daniel, and they said, we are going to make good little Babylonians out of these guys. We are going to give them, we're going to teach them our tongue, we're going to teach them our literature, we're going to give them our clothes, we're going to give them the names. We're going to win them over. And we're going, to, we're going to treat them right. And they're going to go back later on and we're going to let them rule in Israel sometime down the road. And they're going to tell them how great we are. And they're going to sell all this Babylonian stuff on their own people. And it's going to be easier to win these hearts and minds of these people instead of knocking them all on the head by letting these people do that. They'll do the work for us. That's the plan that this man has in mind. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is up to when he says, let's get these people together. So the Bible says then, and so there's an investment and it costs a lot of money. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. In other words, they were going to eat like kings. Okay? That's what the Bible says. They were to be educated for three years. So it's like a going into the military service or something. Learning a whole new way of doing things. And at the end of the time, they were to stand before the king. Now what that stand before the king means is everything I just told you. They were going to be there at the palace and when there were problems in Judah, they were going to be able to say, uh, can you give me advice, Daniel, on what to do? Because there's an insurrection there. They're unhappy about something. And Daniel could give them advice. And then maybe he might even send Daniel down there to handle it. That's the idea. 
Among these, the people that he chose, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Judah is that tribe through which, by the way, always from Genesis on the end, the royal line comes from. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So here comes their new names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. we got to stop right there. This should be record scratch, hit the brakes, wait a minute, what just happened? Daniel has been given a new name. When I was in Spanish in high school, they were handing out names. And when they came to Sean and they were trying to give me my Spanish name, my Spanish teacher told me my name was going to be Tomas. Now, I'm not, I don't speak a lot of Spanish, but I know Tomas is not Sean. But for whatever reason, because there was maybe an already a, a one, it was probably a John who was a one, and there is no, I guess, equivalent to Sean. I don't know. Uh, I, I guess there's not. So I was Tomas, okay? I was okay with accepting Tomas. Belteshazzar Daniel says, I'll take it. It's got a lot of syllables. It's kind of funny to say, I'll take it. They give him some new clothes. They're like, hey, now this is all right. I'll probably wear these other clothes when I'm around my people. But when I'm over here, if you want me to wear these robes and look all silly, I'll do that for you. Sure, no problem. We'll learn your language. When I go home, I'll probably learn. I'll probably speak Hebrew or Aramaic, whatever, Aramaic. I'll probably speak that around my people. But when I'm with you people, I'll go ahead and speak Babylonian. I got no problem with that. So Daniel is going along to get along. Everything seems to be going okay so far. And then we get this record stretch. Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Everything else was fine. All these other things were not a problem for him to embrace. They were changes he could adapt to. Why all of a sudden does Daniel say, I will not defile myself, resolve himself, I will not defile myself with king's food or the wine that he drank? Why is he doing that? The reason he's doing that is because he has a vision about who he is, about who God is, and what the world is, and who he's supposed to be, and how we're supposed to be. He has a vision of life, a worldview that is very different than the chief of the unions and of Nebuchadnezzar's. And this worldview is fueled and informed by the Scripture, by the Torah especially, the books of Moses. Daniel knows from God's Word He's read the law of Moses. And he knows that the first commandment is, I shall not have, there will not be any other gods before me. And he knows that he cannot worship idols, and he knows the dietary laws. He knows that Israel is a separate people, and there are certain things that he cannot eat. And if that food has been sacrificed to idols, he won't touch it. And so Daniel says, I've resolved myself, I will not be defiled by that. The whole point of his defilement, the reason he construes this food as defilement, comes from his understanding of God's Word. He has a vision of life that is fueled by the Scripture. And from that Scripture, this is key, this is stuff that the chief of the eunuchs doesn't know anything about. Daniel is having to resolve himself and make a stand about something that people around him will not understand. These people around him don't get it. Why do I have to 
Why do I have to worry about something like this? And so the chief of the eunuch says, uh, excuse me, let me say what Daniel did. So Daniel then says, uh, okay, because I'm dissolved, i got to do something. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This is why I've been preaching for nine years around this place almost. God will do for you what you cannot do for yourself if you do for him what you can do. Daniel did not want to defile himself with this food. And he couldn't control certain things. I can't control the decisions of Congress. I can't make celebrities just be quiet about things they don't know anything about. I can't make Jerry Jones sell the Dallas Cowboys. There are things in this life I cannot control. You understand? There's things out that are not within my power. There are other things that are in my control. And Daniel says, okay... I'm going to do what I can do for God. I've resolved to follow His Word. And I'm going to tell this man and ask him if it's okay. Help me out here. This is what this looks like. And so he does what he can do. God does for him what he can't do for himself. The Bible says, God, that Daniel found favor and compassion. This chief of the eunuchs looked at him and said, I don't know why, but I like this guy. I don't know what it is about him, but I like this guy. I like his resolve. I like his moxie. I'm going to try to help him out. That's God's work. That's God's favor. God's done that for you on your jobs many times. God's done that for you in schools many times. God's done that for you with your neighbors. God's done that for you on many occasions in your life. Favor all over the place. Oftentimes we are unconscious of it, unaware of it. Don't even thank God for it. But it happens all the time. God does for us what we can't do for ourselves. I can't tell you how many times that's been true in my life. Now, the chief of the eunuchs, now remember, he had favor. I mean, Daniel, the chief was wanting to do good to him. But look what happens. The chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king. The king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, my whole job depends upon you people succeeding. You guys are gaunt looking, throwing up, and sickly, and can't show up for class, and all of that. That's my head. I like you, man, but I mean, I like my head a little bit more. That's the deliberation going on in this man's head, and the Bible says. Daniel comes up with this idea. And this is what I've been telling you all for months. When you soak yourself in Scripture, when your imagination is soaked in God's Word, there, there's no verse in the Bible. You go back and read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. There's no verse in those places that's going to tell Daniel how he's going to obey the dietary laws if he's been back in Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar's making him eat the king's meat. There's no verse in Moses that says that specifically. All it says is don't do it. That's right. So the Holy Spirit working through God's word soaked in this man's mind and imagination provides wisdom in the moment and he's able to improvise a solution. He's created and he's able to come up with a solution on the fly. That's the kind of decision making you need in your job. That's the kind of decision you make, decision making you need when somebody, when your kid comes and tells you this news or announces to you this. This is the kind of decision making you need when they tell you at your job, we don't need you anymore. 
This is the kind of decision making you need then. And the Bible says that Daniel had a solution. It was right there for him. Again, there's no prescription in Exodus. He could have searched the Bible all day and night and then some. And there wouldn't have been one verse that said specifically, and by the way, this whole dietary thing, if you happen to be held captive, this is what you do. There's no specific case law like that. So Daniel has to listen. He has to know the scripture and he has to be close to the Lord in prayer. And by doing those things, the spirit is able. There is this, it's like pipes. It's like there's a free flow of, of information flowing back and forth. J Jacob said, I saw angels descending and ascending and descending on a ladder from head to heaven. And that's what is happening for Daniel. Daniel has been praying to God. We'll see that. And as he's praying, his prayers are going. And God's sending answers. Yeah. Here it is, the Bible said. Then uh, Daniel said uh, to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you. And deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to him in this matter. Do you hear that? That's favor. This guy is in danger. This guy says, if I do what you want me to, I can lose my head. But yet the Bible says after Daniel comes up with an idea, this guy's so inclined to help him that he's like, okay, sure, let's do it. God's doing that for some of you right now. He's been holding that door open for you and some of you don't even know it, don't realize it. He's been opening that door for you and keeping it open for you. That's what's happening here. And so then he says... Uh, at the end of 10 days, verse 15, it was seen that they were, in fact, better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Daniel was out of the dilemma. Daniel was provided a path to where he didn't have to defile and he didn't lose everything. As for these four, month, four youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom. Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Dan Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. They were chosen above everybody else. And in every matter of wisdom, every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Now, that last statement, it, it hides a reality for most readers of the Bible. Okay? The first year of the king of Cyrus is 539 B.C. But we're talking about like 600 B.C., when this event happened. So in other words, God preserved this young man through the whole period of exile until he wasn't a young man anymore the whole time. And he was elevated like Joseph was with Pharaoh. This is a story, this is a story that happens. It's a recurring story in the Bible. You follow the Lord. You soak yourself in God's word. You yield yourself to his spirit. Do what he asks you to do. You hear and obey his word. And he shows favor time and time again. My father never went to college until he was a, a, a middle-aged man with, with, with kids out of the house. 
He never went to school until after that. He went into a mail room at a, at a company, and he ended up, he ended up in, at the end of his career, retiring as a, as a director at Lockheed Martin. And all of that was favor of God. Everybody on his job at his level, everybody had degrees, and he kept getting promoted. And when some new leader would come in, they would look at him like, how can you be here? How can you have this job? Nobody else has this job without a degree. I've seen it happen with tons of people in my life. God showing people favor. Giving people favor. Uh, now, sometimes, because God's got given us favor, we're going to end up with jealous spirits, aren't we? We're going to end up with people and hindrances at times. Sometimes, somebody's going to come along and not like what's going on with you, and they're going to try to put their thumb down on you. And they're going to throw you in a pit and put you in a prison. And God says, look, I can work with a pit in a prison. I can take you from a pit in a prison and put you in a palace. That's what I can do. That's what I can do. And so we trust the Lord. There's this old Chinese proverb. There's this, this, this man, he, he, uh, he, has a, he has one horse and, and, and one son. And he has to, uh, you know, this horse is needed to help plow the field. And one day, the horse gets loose and goes out into the woods. And he goes out into the woods, and all the townspeople come to him, and they say, Oh, no, we're so sorry that you're in the shape that you're in. Now, how are you going to plow your field? And the man looks at them, and he says, Good luck, bad luck, who's to say? The young man goes and looks. The son goes into the woods to try to find the horse. And while he's out there, he finds 12 wild horses and brings them all back home. And all the townspeople come to the house and they say, what a windfall. This is awesome. Congratulations. And he says, good luck, bad luck. Who's to say? And so then all of a sudden with all these new horses, the son's training and, 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 and he, one day he's riding one and he falls down and he breaks his leg. And it's a bad break and he's unable to help his aging father with the fields. And the townspeople come around and they say, oh, what terrible news. How awful. And he says, good luck, bad luck. Who's to say? And then the, the emperor comes to their village. And he's conscripting young men to go and serve in an absolutely, a, a, a definite no-brainer, everyone will die in this battle situation. He comes to this man's house and they see that his son has his broken leg and he's not able to be conscripted in the army. And they come to him and they, all of their sons are gone. He's got his son there being able to help. Still there, gonna make you know make it and live on. And they said, Oh, we're so, you know, you're so lucky. You're so, good luck, bad luck, who's to say? Now, that's a Chinese proverb. We're not Confucians in here. You know, that's somebody are. But that Chinese proverb preaches a Bible principle. And that Bible principle is something like this. When everybody else construes your situation as a disaster. When everybody else looks at your situation and says, this is a failure, this is a defeat, this is a disaster, this, this looks like the sign that God's not for you, whatever. Every time they come along and do that stuff, the Bible keeps showing us that God keeps snatching victory out of the jaws of defeat. God keeps taking things that are upside down and making them right side up. God keeps doing it. 
in the Bible. Job's comforters come and they say, oh, if you would just be honest and confess your sin, God would never let this kind of stuff happen to somebody who didn't have hidden sin. And Job just waits and waits and he complains to them about their stuff and their, their lack of comforting. But at the end of the day, God shows up. And when God shows up, he vindicates Job. He says, sure enough, Job, you, you didn't have to say that. You were wrong about this. You don't, you don't know the half of it. But to you three, you four, he's right. There wasn't any hidden sin. I know what I'm doing. I'm sovereign and I'm in control. And sometimes the storm that looks like it's going to destroy you is something I'm orchestrating. Did you know that shipwreck that Paul was in? That shipwreck in the book of Acts where they, they lost everything and they thought everybody was going to die and all of them were losing their minds? And Paul said, look, it's going to be okay. We're all here. and We're going to make it. Did you know that that whole shipwreck, if that hadn't happened, as disastrous as it seemed, nobody was lost in that shipwreck. And you know what happened? The island of Malta heard the gospel. Nobody would have heard the gospel in Malta for generations if that ship hadn't wrecked on that island. God knows what he's doing. He's been doing it a lot longer than us. How many of you here today enjoy it when your kids or grandkids? tell you how to do something better that you've been doing for 30, 40, 50 years. You don't like that very much, do you? Some of us need that good, hard discipline this morning from the Lord that God knows what He's doing. He hasn't forgotten you. And by the way, the devil's telling some of you that you're, well, yes, but this happened because you're not God's child. I can't speak for everybody in the whole world, but I'm going to tell you, some of you folk in here that are struggling the way you're struggling, my gut, my instinct, my spirit, my discerner says that there's people in here today. You're struggling with God. You see, I must not be the Lord's, and that's not it at all. That has nothing to do with it. You just need to put Satan under your feet, and you need to hear God's word that says, if, God, if my heart condemns me, God's greater than my heart. Amen. That's what somebody needs to hear. God's greater than my heart if it condemns me. These things that are happening to me in my life, these struggles we're having in our job, these struggles we're having in our body, these struggles we're having in our church, these struggles we have in our kids, these kinds of situations in our lives, they are not a sign or an indicator that you have failed or you lack faith. Oftentimes they are important tests that are necessary in order to get to the next level. They're character developers. They are the moment in your life when God can show out and you can see the Red Sea part. That's what's happening for some of you right now. We used to sing a song when I was a kid that used to sing it called Don't Give Up on the Brink of a Miracle. Amen. That's kind of where we are some of us right now. Just ready to just flame out. We're ready to quit. The Holy Spirit spoke a while ago. I know we did. About that quenching. That quen God won't allow the smoking flax to be quenched. Okay. Daniel had a vision about who God was and he wasn't Babylonian. He had Vision about who he was, and that was informed by the story of Scripture, not by the culture around him. And this is where we got to figure this thing out with our kids. This is where we got to figure this out with our teenagers and our young adults. This is where we got to figure this out. We got to be like Daniel, and we got to improvise because we got a problem in our culture. I know that there are churches on every corner, but we are living in a spiritual and cultural Babylon. It doesn't matter that you can get a Bible from Amazon to you tonight. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that there's a church everywhere you look. It doesn't matter. We are in a spiritual and cultural Babylon. We worship idols in America. We worship idols. Now, there are actually people who bow down to Buddhas on pagodas and other idols, but I'm not even talking about that. That's happening in our country, but I'm not talking about that. 
I'm talking about the worship of mammon or money. I'm talking about the worship of martial strength, of war, of violence, that the, the, the god of Mars, the god Mars. I'm talking about Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty, love, romance, sex. These gods have been around for a long time. There are no gods like our God, but they are demonic presences, and we are worshiping them in our culture. They're idols that we worship. They're idols, and we live in a Babylon. And so like Daniel, you and I are going to have to be soaked in Scripture so that we can have a vision of what our life is supposed to be, who God is, where we're going, what's wrong with the world, what the solutions are. The challenge is in Jesus' day, when Jesus showed up, he had four solutions. There were four solutions. The first solution we talked about on Thursday night, the first solution was the Essenes. If I had somebody up here acting them out, they'd have a big sign up here that said, Head for the hills. That would be their sign. Run to the hills. The Essenes looked around and they said, You want to know what's happened? When God sent Daniel and his people back to, Jer to Jerusalem, when Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilt the wall, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi saw the temple be rebuilt, the one thing that did not happen, the one thing that did not happen, that there was holdover from the Old Testament promises was this, the one big one, Yahweh had not returned to Zion. On the tabernacle, in the garden, in Solomon's temple, the glory of the Lord filled the house. But Ezekiel saw that glory depart. And that glory did not return when Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi rebuilt that second temple. Things were incomplete. When you finish the last verse of Malachi, you finish the Hebrew Bible with a sense of incompleteness. Something has to happen. Yahweh needs to come back. That's what's supposed to happen. When you read the Old Testament, you're left with where is Messiah? Where is God's intervention? Where's the... So the Essenes said, look, that temple is corrupt. That temple is satanic. That, this is Sodom and Gomorrah, and pretty soon the fire's going to fall, so let's get out of Jerusalem, and let's go out here, and let's wait for the destruction, because we're the remnant being saved. That was one response of Jewish people when Jesus showed up. A second response was the Sadducees. If you can't beat them... Join. Accommodate. Status quo. Well, I don't really, you know, care for the Roman ways, but I will say that uh, they've offered me a good job and some security, and I'm going to be on a medical plan. I haven't had that. <coughs> they give me retirement? I mean, retirement? Are you kidding me? Yeah, I don't like them. They're rough and mean and all of that. And they probably not do. They worship, uh, they worship gods, not really. But we're talking about retirement. About retirement. When was I ever going to get that? And so they just make their bed with the Romans. The Sadducees are like, well, if you can't beat them, join them. That was one response. Another response was the Zealots. The Zealots' response was, I hate the Romans. God hates the Romans. We have got to get them out of here. Okay, that was their response. Nothing good will happen until all the Romans die. That's that response. 
The fourth response was the Pharisees. I thought about bringing props this morning. The Pharisees, if I had props this morning, would have had a Bible in one hand and a bat in the other hand. Okay? That was their response. I like the Pharisees, despite all of their bad press in the Gospels. I like the Pharisees. I'll tell you why. I like them because they didn't run away like the Essenes. And they weren't ready to jump into violence and kill everybody. And they definitely were totally unsatisfied with the idea of accommodating these people. These poor guys, if I had been alive in that day, Jesus would have had to been selling his gospel to me because I'd have probably been one of them. Because these guys were sitting there going, Yahweh's not back. And we know that his word says that when all of Israel is obedient to him, and he will bless us and he will dwell with his people. So what we need to do is drill down and double down and, 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 and dig deep and, and let's know our Bible and let's live our Bible. And let's practice Torah. And you know what? This is going to have to be an extraordinary effort. Because this is an extraordinary time. And we don't know how we failed. We don't know how we're all polluted and unclean. So every ordinary Jewish person, you're going to have to act like a priest. You're going to have to go above and beyond the call. You're going to have to do more. You know, this is the, this is the message my dad preached to me in baseball. Unless your effort exceeds the efforts of all the other children. You will not start on Friday night. Unless your righteousness exceeds you. That's that, that kind of thing. We're going to press, press, press. The Pharisees wanted to push. we got to get this pollution out of here. They didn't really think that that temple was God's, that God was really pleased with all of it. But they were going along because it was like, well, I mean, we, we have things in place. They were willing to make some compromises, but they were trying really hard to, you know, there was an effort made to try to get God's favor. And of course it was misguided. And they were judgmental. That's why the bat. If you didn't do it, I mean, Larry, if you're standing in the way of this getting God back here, get in line, right? Or just take the Bible and use it and about that and beat with the, with the Bible. Have you ever been beaten with the Bible? I've been browbeaten with the Bible a bunch. I used to have preachers preach to me about hell when I was a kid. They looked at me with eyes that said they wanted me to go there. Have you ever had that sermon? Anyhow, I did. I had it. The spirit of it was all wrong. <laughs> a couple of times I had to go shake their hand and make sure, like, we're okay, right? <laughs> Even me. Okay. These are the responses. Enough of the silliness. Let's get to practical stuff in front. Here's the deal. We're in Babylon like Daniel was. We're in a situation like these people were. Things aren't right. Something's wrong. We need a solution. We need a solution. All those people have different responses. Let's just do education for a minute. Some people have decided the system's corrupt. We homeschool. Some people have decided we need a Christian, we need a Christian alternative. They want, we want them socialized. We do Christian school. Some of them have decided, no, this system's not so corrupt. We need to be the leaven that leavens it up. And in a small town like this in East Texas, well, we're going to public school and we're going to do it. That's what we're going to do. Now, in my mind, the pastor of the Church of Mount Olive here in Kennard, in my mind, any one of those three decisions can be a healthy Christian solution. It can be. And I don't know that there's going to be one uniform everybody's got to wear that calls the name of Jesus. You know, I don't think that's the case. Well, here's what I do think. I think that if our kids are going to serve God, then whatever choice we make with their education, 
we're going to have to start being intentional about what we're doing. That's right. We need to repurpose some of the stuff that we – so listen, there are people who said to me before about, you know, we need this you know, for our children or whatever. When I was a, a, in youth ministry before and, and, and different things, I had parents sometimes that came to me when I was a youth pastor early, early on. And it was kind of like you could tell that they wanted me to solve the parenting problem for them. Fix this. Fix that. We are really knocking it out of the park if we get 75 hours or 100 hours a year of influence with your children in this church. I mean, we're knocking it out of the park. If we get 100 hours of influence with your kids, you have 3,000 to 5,000 hours a year as a parent. Three to 5,000. If you're a teacher, you have a unique position of influence with these people. These are the places and the spaces. We've got to repurpose this. The Bible said, bind it like frontlets before their eyes. Put it like a necklace around their neck. What's going to happen, Will, someday? When the kids come by and they're saying things like, what do these stones mean? Why do we go to church every Sunday? Why do you read your Bible? Why are we praying? Why do we not seem to do those activities? And why are we always caught up with that? When they ask you, what do these stones mean? He said, Moses said, I'm not worried about you people as long as you're wandering around in the wilderness. When you need manna today and you need my hand right now, I know you're going to be paying attention. This is me my whole Christian life, right? This is you. Often this is how it is for us. We get, we get desperate. Somebody, I, I can push and push and push. Read your word. Get the word in you. Get the word in you. And they say, I don't have time. I don't understand what I read. I don't, I don't like it. I get bored. I fall asleep. I can't understand it. I've got all these controversies in my head. All these different opinions and stuff. And I just get conflicted. I can't get into it. And, and you got all these excuses. But then you let a man get back in the corner. You let that same man look at his marriage falling apart. Look at that same man with bad, bad stories, bad news, whatever. You let that same person have a crisis in his life. You know what's going to happen? Oftentimes, those people become like Thomas Edison inventing ways to get the scripture inside of them. That's, That's what happens. What I'm suggesting to you today is we're going to have to repurpose some of our time. Some of you with your nieces and nephews. Some of you with your grandchildren. We're going to have to repurpose some of that time again. Moses said, look, when you get back, when you, I'm not worried about you as long as you're out here desperately needing me every day. But when you get into the land and you, and you get to eat fruit from trees that you didn't plant and you get to, cult, and you get to enjoy all of this and everything's taken care of, then you're going to forget me. That's what I'm concerned about. And so because that happens, you need to tell them and tell them and retell them and tell them again. And by the way, telling them and retelling them only works so much. If you're not practicing it. That's it. Telling them is better than nothing. But telling them and modeling it is much better. Hallelujah. Now, part of the modeling for me as a dad and as a husband and as a son, as a Christian, how am I going to be a Christian son? Well, part of the modeling is I fail sometimes. And part of the modeling is 
is knowing how to know that and apologize for it and make amends and get it right and get the thing flowing again instead of being the thing that's stopping everything up. That's what we have to do sometimes. We're not being, I mean, Jesus says, here's the, here's the, here's the goal. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. There's a great goal, right? There it is. But the same Jesus in the same book is telling us, the same, his disciples are saying to us, my little children, don't sin. But if you do, here's what you do. Here's how you fail like a Christian. Frankly, if I can, here's how you sin like a Christian. You repent, you confess, and you make amends. That's how you do it. Nobody's telling you in this church that we're perfect and you, if you can't be, then we don't want you here. Everybody in here knows that we are on our journey, on our path, and we haven't arrived yet. But we also know this. We are dissatisfied. I am not going to be satisfied with the devil's second best. The angel said, or God told Moses in Deuteronomy, look to the mountain. That's where the fire is. Look to the mountain. I found out a few, many years ago, a preacher was preaching. He said something about eagles and hawks. And I, I didn't even realize at the time that there was any difference. But hawks are predators of eagles. And I found out that hawks are faster than eagles. And hawks are stronger than eagles. And so if an eagle is pursued by a hawk and it tries to fight it, it will lose. If it tries to outfly it, it will lose. But the eagle has this one device. It has a lens, a special lens in its eye that allows it to stare straight at the sun. Interestingly enough, the hawks do not have that device. And so if when the eagle is pursued by the hawk, it will not try to fly or try to fight, but if it will turn its gaze straight toward the sun and fly straight to the sun, the hawk cannot. The only way the eagle survives is by looking to the sun. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I look to the hills from whence cometh my help. My help comes from the Lord. He made heaven and earth. He won't allow my foot to be moved. Don't fight it. Don't fly from it. Just come straight to me. Bible said over and over again, we have access boldly to go to the throne of God. Archie, that's why we did that today. I, I, we, we have been, we, we pray, we pray encouragement. We pray for favor with doctors. But in God's house, on God's day, in, among God's people, what we pray in here is, God heal. God do what no man can do. We fly straight to the sun. We fly straight to the sun. That's where our victory is. So my encouragement to you today is this. As a church, we've got to foster a vision in, our, in ourselves and our young people. A vision, a true vision about God. The Bible says without a vision, people perish. 
We need a vision for God, who he is, what our lives are, who we are, what's wrong with the world, and what the solutions are. We need that vision. And if you want a true vision, the Bible says, Jesus prayed for us, sanctify them all through your truth. Your word is truth. And so if I want the true vision of myself, of you, of God, of the world, of what's wrong and what can fix it, then I have to go to scripture and soak there. Because the narrative of scripture fuels a true vision. When you do that, you know what's going to happen to you? When you soak in Scripture and you catch the vision Isaiah did, you're going to hear the Lord say, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? It's going to issue into practices. You're not going to have to be told that you ought to pray. You're going to be driven to pray. You're not going to have to be browbeaten about reading and meditating on Scripture. You're going to start realizing, I'm a royal priest and I don't even know how to act. And the only place on the planet where I can find that stuff out is, is right here in this Word. I can't stop getting out. I need to be in it all the time. I'm setting my mind there. So that vision fueled by Scripture is going to issue into practices we call virtues that build a character. I told them Thursday night, I'll close with this. I told them Thursday night, you think about this. This is good stuff. Okay, copyright, Sean, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. What if tomorrow you guys found, so, so, so Adam is out and he's, you know, he's digging on the property and he finds a Shakespearean play. I have no idea why that would be out there, but let's say it was. He finds the first four acts of an unknown Shakespearean play. Okay? And it also has the ending of Act 5. But most of Act 5 is missing. And isn't there some drama group in Crockett? Okay, never mind. Never mind. Okay, I was so much trying to help me. Okay, I thought there was. I know there is. Someone I saw a sign for it. It was on the uh, number square. Anyway, okay. So somebody, okay, you don't like that? Well, we'll try this. We'll try Austin, okay? Somebody from Austin, the big shots there, okay? The government. They're like, hey, we found this play. It's important. And they come and they run a documentary series and they're going to perform this Shakespearean play. And so they put the best actors on it and they say, we're going to get, we're going to learn. And what are those actors going to do? They don't have Act 5. Most of them. So what are they going to do? Well, they're going to soak themselves in Act 1, 2, 3, and 4. And they're going to know those acts so well. They're going to read that ending and they're going to know that ending so well. They're going to be able to improvise faithfully the in-between. What went before and what we know is coming. Improvising some of this here. Based on the, future, the past patterns and what we know is coming. That is exactly, that is exactly what God's call is to you today. Creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, these are acts. These are the big acts in God's story. He created the world. We disobeyed him. He wanted to rule the world through obedient humans. Adam failed. So Abraham is the solution. Israel is going to do what Adam couldn't do. Then they failed. And so what Israel couldn't do as a nation, one Jewish person, Jesus, God in the flesh, as a Jewish human being, he does what they couldn't do and obeys God. These are the prior acts. And we know what's going to come in the future. Jesus was dead, rose again. He died, was re resurrected, he's ascended to the Father. And we know he's coming back and we know he rules all. And sin so now we have to improvise. 
We have to act out the rest of Act 5. And that's what God's called us to do. And you can't do that without intention. You can't do that without vision. You can't do that without knowing the acts. The building of character. This is the script. And God's called you to be a character in his story. Father, this character that we're talking about developing today, it never happens by ourselves. It always happens in community. We need each other to encourage each other. We need each other to practice. We need each other to model. We need each other for accountability. We need each other for challenge. We need each other for correction. We need each other to measure. We need all of that. We need each other. So God, I pray for Mount Olive that you, Lord, will give us a fresh vision. Open our eyes to see you like Isaiah did, high and lifted up the train of your robe filling the temple. Let us hear the seraphim crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Somebody in this place today, that's what they need more than anything in the whole world. They just need an encounter with you. They've been coming to church. They've been trying and striving to live a Christian life. And what the missing element is, is Christ. They need you. They need to know that they are united with you. They need to know that you are in them and they are in you. And that they are fueled and, 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 and strengthened by you, God. They need to experience that for themselves. Not just through grandparents. Not just through parents. Not just through a friend or a sibling. But for themselves, they need to experience your presence. A vision of you. And to see you again in all of your glory. And to see you again. In your word, God, feed and fuel that vision. And show people who you really are. Show them how transformative your love is. Show them in the scripture what your transformative love does. It changes people. Show them in your scripture who we're called to be. Not failures, not slaves, not reprobates. We've been called to be royal priests. Show them from your word, God, what the problem is. The problem is, God, that we try to play you. We try to be God instead of playing the characters we've been called to play. We're trying to play roles we're not capable of playing. That's the problem. That causes all kinds of other things. And the solution is surrender to you. Father, show them that fuel of vision from your word. Help Mount Olive to accomplish that in our preaching, in our teaching, in our living, in our modeling, in our singing, praying, testifying, fellowshipping. Let our families practice this at home. God, today, this is Father's Day. I pray today that some, some parents in this room will get an urgency and an intentionality about themselves to go and to read the scripture with their families. To pray together as a family. To carve out time. If it's not going to happen every night of the week, if people are on different schedules, so be it. Father, help each family like Daniel to get creative and wise about ways to do that. If they're empty nesters, if they don't have children at home, for them to do it as a couple, and especially for couples to find those that are doing it alone and do it with them.
Maybe that means a grandparent. Maybe that means a sibling. Maybe that means an uncle, an aunt, a nephew, a niece. Put an urgency and a creativity about how to get this done. Soaking in scripture, reading and praying as families. Help us to repurpose moments if we're on lawnmowers. Help us to put the earbuds in and listen to your word. If we're driving down the road, help us to get creative, God. Help us to repurpose things. That time we have with our kids. That time when we're all just going to veg out. Lord, I pray in Christ's name that you'll help us to repurpose at least a part of that. Go serve somebody in the community. Go be hospitable to somebody. Go give something to somebody. Father, help us to do that. Repurpose. Teach the story. And retell the story. Because it's going to take intentionality and vision. It's going to take your scripture. And it's going to take character. And it's going to take a community. In order to thrive in this Babylon we live in. We can't skirt by. We can't sneak by. I'm asking these things in the name of Jesus. I'm pleading with you, Lord. Holy Spirit, get a hold of some folk this week. Get a hold of them this week, God. I pray that when they try to forget about it, or when, they, when it slips out of their mind, that you keep reminding them they need this. They need this. It's who they are. Show them that, Lord, in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name.